everyone, I'm Tanya Luna, a psychology researcher and educator. And I'm Brian Luna. I think zombies are inevitable. And you're listening to Talk, Talk Psych, Psych to me. me, a show where I explain research and theories from the field of psychology. And I try to keep up. Let's get into it. Okay, before I tell you what we're talking about today, <laughs> I'm going to try recreating a version of an experiment originally designed by Dr. Sharice Nixon at Penn State. So you just need a sheet of paper and a pen, or you can type this. Which I have. Excellent. That is the sound of pen. So we're going to start with something quick and easy. Okay. I'm going to give you some words, and I want you to rearrange the letters of these words to form a different real word. The first word is slapstick. Now, do I have to use every letter? Yeah. And just go as quick as you can. Let me know when you're done. Good. Um, yeah. <laughs> All right, let me give you the next one. Wait, wait, whirl. wait. Oh, oh, so. We got to keep going. Don't worry about it. So the next one is whirl. W-H-I-R-L. I know how to spell whirl. You can't spell another word with whirl. Yeah. No, you can't. I'm telling you right now, you can't. This is the experiment. And this is part of the experiment because you're doing some weird psycho thing with the first one. These are all words you can't. All right. Last I see word the... is. Okay. Cinerama. C-I-N-E-R-A-M-A. You're getting awfully defensive. Because I know this is a waste. You want to give up on Cinerama? Um, Just give you a few more seconds. These have to be in English? Yes. And words that I know and you know together? Yes. Can they be slang? Not for Spanglish. this last one. No? No. All right. All right. Five, four, what? three, two. One word? One. Okay, time's up. How did that feel? It felt like I was being poked and prodded. I know words. And I looked at slapstick and I'm like, yeah, you can do like ass-liptic, but that's not, that's not <laughs> a word that you Can you define ass-liptic? It's a, it's, we're not going to get this whole thing. It's medicine. Can you, it's medical. Can you put it in a sentence? I'm sorry, sir. We're going to have to operate because you have an ass-liptic <laughs> and it's, it's going to interfere in your personal life okay. every day. So we have to remove it today. <laughs> and the guy's like, do I have to? Trust me. You're going to want this ass-liptic gone. Thank you. Thank you for that yeah. definition. I feel like I learned a lot. So the way Dr. Nixon originally did the study and the way that I <laughs> I actually used to do this with my students back when I used to teach psychology mm-hmm. was you would split up the room into two groups, but they didn't realize that they were in two different groups. Yeah. Half of the group would get exactly these words that you got slapstick, whirl, cinerama. The other group would get tab, melon, cinerama. What can you do with tab? Bat. Melon. Lemon. Okay. So you're pretty good at this. Cinerama. Um... Interesting that you asked me if it was in something that could be said in English because if you transpose the letters, you get American. Yeah, I was just getting to that. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so what Sorry. do you think happens? So you've got one group that's got tab, melon, cinerama. The other group has slapstick, whirl, cinerama. Well, my guess is is that you're never going to get cinerama because the first two are impossible so you're more likely because you're on your brain is already seeing and transposing and having success that you are going to get cinerama so you set me up luna once i set again. you up 
I did once again. Up. And I knew it. I knew it by your calm tone and the way you were looking at me. I knew this was a setup from the start. I'm telling you, you have psychology. I have street psychology, and I, I, I'll, I'll top it every time. <laughs> yeah. So, so you're absolutely right. Even though Cinerama is solvable, the students who had the impossible words were much less likely to solve it. Yeah. Until recently, the explanation that researchers had was that Dr. Nixon induced something called learned helplessness. Moxon. I'm sorry. Noxon. Nixon. All right, keep going. You're very good at this. And the letter M is not in Nixon. However. I thought you said Mixon. No. <laughs> Dr. Mixon? What is she, a DJ? <laughs> so the story of how researchers came to understand learned helplessness is actually super sad. The first major study was conducted by Martin Seligman and Stephen Mayer in the 1960s. The way that they did this original research was they put dogs in these fixed harnesses mm-hmm. and they applied repeated electric shocks to them. 64 electric shocks. For one group, no matter what they did, they kept shocking them. So Mm. there's no way that the dog can stop it. Another group was actually taught how to turn off the shock by pressing a panel with their noses. So then the real study starts the next day. They take these dogs and they place them into something called a shuttle box, which is an apparatus where the floor is electrocuted on one side. The dogs can easily jump out over this low barrier. What they want to know is how do the two different experiences that the dogs had the day before impact how they act in the shuttle box? What's your hypothesis? I would imagine the dogs that learned how to turn off the thing were the ones that got out of the shuttle, this terrible thing that I think actually was in my first daycare. And then the second, the other group just sat there and got shocked. Yeah. So 90% of the dogs that learned to stop the shock the previous day got out. Oh, jeez. Of the dogs that were stuck in the harness and couldn't escape, only two-thirds of them figured out how to get out. The rest of them, they would lie there, whimpering, not doing anything. So Seligman and Mayer interpreted this reaction as learned helplessness. In other words, they believe the dogs learned that no matter what they did, they couldn't get out. And they're going over their notes right now in hell. Yeah, it's funny you say that. So I was just reading a recent paper they wrote in 2016, and they write, We must mention that running dog experiments was a harrowing experience for both of us. We are both (laughs) dog lovers, and as soon as we could, we stopped experimenting with dogs and used rats, mice, and people in helplessness experiments with exactly the same pattern of results. So I'm curious if you think about the humans in your life or maybe your own life experience. Where else have you seen learned helplessness in action? I think in school. You would see that schools that are in, you know, like hard hit areas, poor neighborhoods. Actually, if I think about it, the program where you and I met teaching for citizen Mm -hmm. schools, which is an amazing program, it's really designed around this idea that kids in these really poor neighborhoods where there's something like a 90% failure rate Mm -hmm. on standardized testing exams, they've kind of given up on schools. And so the idea is that, remember, I think they called it hide the spinach in the brownie. Oh, right. right. (laughs) (laughs) So spinach is the learning and the brownie is like some kind of fun fun activity activity around that. Have them having fun and then be like, did you know that actually all this time you'd been learning? (laughs) What's interesting is that Marty Seligman later links the reaction of learned helplessness to depression. He and other researchers have found that not only did inescapable shock and noise produce symptoms of depression, depressed people who hadn't received any of the inescapable events, they hadn't experienced any of that, they behaved in laboratories almost as if they had. So if you come in to participate in the study with symptoms of depression, you demonstrate this kind of passivity in the human version of the shuttle box and you give up more quickly on cognitive problems. 
Later, researchers found that learned helplessness can even be passed down from our parents. Oh, wow. So, for example, in a 2018 study by Laura River and her team, they found that children of mothers with depression symptoms, including feelings of helplessness, the kids demonstrated helplessness on a challenging puzzle task. I'm curious, do you feel like you picked up any helplessness feelings or agency feelings from your parents? Oof. I don't... Because both of our parents... Yeah. Especially our moms have struggled with depression. Sure. And I'm wondering, do we pick think, up on that? Well, point? I think you build walls. I think you like do these preemptive safety nets. I mean, even where I come from, a lot of people didn't leave home. Like a lot of people didn't leave the neighborhood or didn't leave where we grew up because it's just like, that's not really instilled in you. Do you remember people passing down kind of helplessness lessons about leaving home? There was a lot of like, look, if you're going to go to school, don't go to one where you're going to waste your time and money going out there so you have to move all your stuff back. Or just get a good job. Like, get a job here, you know? Like, you can go to the mall and you can find any good job. Those are good jobs, you know? And, and I was like, well, yeah, I guess so. And then, I, you know, meanwhile, I'm in like the sixth, seventh grade when this happened. Wow. And I wanted to go to college because that's what everyone was doing on TV. Like, I didn't really know what college was, even in sixth or seventh grade. No one really explained that to us. I was very proud of my brother when he went back to school like later on in his life and he got a degree and, and I was like so proud of my brother. It's my older brother and just so proud. It was it was such an inspiration for me to really bust my ass when I got to a school and not give up. I guess what you're saying is kind of going back to the going to college, the message of learned helplessness you got was it's not worth it to go to college because you're just going to have to move back. Mm-hmm. Did you get that when you were moving to New York City from Texas? Yeah, I got a lot of like, you'll be back. It's not for you. We had a community college in San Antonio, but I, I knew I didn't want that. Not because I thought I was better than it. I just... But didn't you get that of people actually scolding you for trying to yeah, move yeah, or trying yeah. to go to a better school? Yeah, like, uh, like oh my God, like, what are you... New York, have you, have you ever been there? You're not going to you're not gonna make it. I mean, like, you're going to... You'll be home in a week or you'll be home in a month, that kind of stuff. And this, got... is, this is for my friends, too. Like, this is like people that I grew up with that it was just scary for everyone uh yeah, and, and they're scary to, for me. in some ways they're probably trying to protect you from absolutely disappointment. i don't think it was anything malicious i think it was just people like you know oh my god you're going to the moon look don't take off your helmet whatever you do don't as a matter of fact don't even go because there are aliens in there when i was thinking about this for myself i think my mother attempted to instill some learned helplessness in me around finances hmm. like i remember i read this book rich dad poor dad <laughs> That my rich friend, Lewis, his dad was like, you got to read this book. And so I was like, I want to know what these people read. The rich person in your life, Lewis's dad, yes. was like, read this. And you were like, I want to be well, rich Well, he didn't too. tell me that. He told oh. Lewis to read it. And I saw it on Lewis's nightstand and I was like, A, you have a nightstand. Mm-hmm. That's already something B, going for you. B, what were you doing? I was sleeping on the couch. Yeah, but what were you doing in his room to look at his nightstand? <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> Anywho. Anywho. So. so I read this book and it was all about how basically poor people are conditioned not to save any money or to rather like think about only saving and not investing. Uh And so I was like, I'm going to invest. And so I was really young at the time and (laughs) I bought some shares of Google. I bought like... I think I bought, I was able to afford like three shares of Google. That's worth $18. And I told my mom and she pretty much started crying and was like, you're going to lose all your money, you know, because what she lived through in Ukraine in the former Soviet Union was you put your money in the bank and the bank just like takes your money. What do you mean? And doesn't give it back? Yeah. 
people just lost their money. Oh, oh, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. So she's saying don't even put it in the bank. Well, she was like, don't give it to Google. Like, don't put it in the stock market. Don't put it in the bank. Put it under your mattress yeah, because yeah. nobody's going to get under your mattress. And I'm like, mom, your mattress doesn't earn interest. And I was like trying to explain. <laughs> Mine does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny you bring up the finance thing because like growing up, you know, we owed people money, whether they be creditors or like, you know, uh, people coming to repossess our stuff. And one of the things was my like, mom used to tell me is like, don't put your money in a bank because someone's going to, someone's going to get to it. Once you cash that like check. The government can take it. Yeah. Creditors like, so can take just it. put it in. So literally like putting it in shoe boxes. Even when I was an adult here in Manhattan, I would cash my check and, and like go to the check cashing place because I didn't cash it in the bank because then they would be like, well, we're going to keep X amount in my mind, you know? As if, as if we were like refugees from this war torn. Don't put it in the bank. Put it in your put it in your socks. You know, yeah. like and then you'd walk around and I'd walk with a limp because I'd have a big old fat wad in my, you know, <laughs> of singles of, of singles of <laughs> yeah. thirty five singles. Yeah. <laughs> I think this is really interesting thinking about the lessons that got passed down to us about risks we shouldn't take, about positive things we shouldn't do. Can we come back to the nightstand? Just kidding. Keep going. I'm having a hard time getting past that. Okay. Keep going. Okay. But, is... so, but here's the fascinating thing. So many years later, Steve Mayer, he and his team repeat the learned helplessness research, this time looking at what's going on inside the brain. And they find something really weird. Because remember in the 60s and really all the way through the 90s and even the early 2000s, we had no way of knowing what was going on inside the brain. It was just like, hey, what do you think is the reason for this? In the past... Researchers thought that expecting to have control over your environment is the normal thing, meaning that it's totally natural that if you should be ever placed in a shuttle box with electrocuted floors, mm -hmm. that you should expect that you can get out of there. But what they actually find is from the neural perspective, passivity in the face of dangerous events that you don't seem to be able to have control over is actually the default. Basically, what they find out is being passive is natural and having agency has to be learned. It turns out that the way to get humans and animals to feel a sense of agency is to do something that researchers call immunizing them. When you say agency. A feeling of control. You have to go through this process of immunization. In other words, you have to be taught that there is a way for you to get out of these difficult situations. Interesting. This is a lot like military training. Like you have to be taught that you can escape any situation. Yeah, I guess that's why they do it because it's not your natural instinct. Exactly. And you have to either through role models or through your own experience, you have to learn that you have essentially the, the resources to overcome obstacles. I, I just thought of it. Sorry. So I'm another thing. Boxing. Like, you know, boxers. You're going to get hit and... I don't care who you are. If as soon as you start boxing, you're throwing pu punches and you're throwing combos like you think you're Muhammad Ali and everything. And then you get hit in the <laughs> face. Right. Mike Tyson had that very famous, everybody's got a plan until you get punched in the face. When you start boxing and everything, the first thing they tell you, like one of the first days that Blackie taught me with... Who's Blackie? Blackie Ramirez was this, uh, was this trainer uh, back in San Antonio when I was a kid. And uh, he, he goes, he just said, put your hands down. Put your hands down. Like you're, you're worried about getting hit. Just put your hands down. And then I got hit in the face. And you hear it's so loud with the Sounds gloves. Like a terrible trainer. It, no, no, no. It, it, but they're not telling you. He's not telling the other guy to kill me. He's telling me to listen. You got and, it. And hear, yeah. You got to hear it so your brain won't shut down. And it, and it really is. It's jarring to get hit. And then you don't, you have to remember that, oh yeah, I have to get, I have to keep going. I have to. Yeah, so it's almost like. He wanted you to experience getting hit and then continuing yeah. to stay in the fight. Yeah, because otherwise, I mean, so many people, you know, they go through their amateur career 
not really taking any punches. And then when they get to the thing, they're like, oh, wow, this is people hit really hard. Even if you think of famous fighters who were on a winning streak, like Ronda Rousey comes to mind and then loses and that crushes their self-concept. She had a really hard time like bouncing back from that talked about depression, talked to even about suicide, suicidal thoughts. Which, by the way, learned helplessness, no matter what you do, you don't see a way out, is very closely tied to depression hmm. and thoughts of Interesting. helplessness wow. and suicide. So don't lose, is what you're saying. Don't <laughs> no. get knocked out. Actually, <laughs> I think what this is teaching us is yeah. you have to lose early on and get back up. Right. I think about this a lot, actually, of our friends or even my sister, how hard they try to give their kids this really easy, perfect childhood. Mm-hmm. It's almost like you want to make sure that your kids don't have to experience any of the bad stuff that you experience. Which is natural. Like, you don't want your kid to be like, you know, grow up. If you had a rough life, you don't want that, you know, for your kid. Yeah, but, what, but what's super interesting is I wonder if that limits the child's ability to get back up at some point early yeah. on. If I think about engineering the perfect childhood, I would want to like plan some obstacles. Absolutely. Thunderdome. Like if I have perfect childhood, like yeah. if, I, if we were going to have a kid. Let's design the perfect childhood for a kid that we'll never have. Okay, perfect. So gladiator training. So like the first day <laughs> they wake up in a pit with like two koalas or something. And all they have to do is just <laughs> eat. They, they don't have to kill a koala. They just have, there's one thing of food in the middle, like a bunch of eucalyptus leaves. And they have to do whatever they have to do to get to those eucalyptus leaves. And then day two is like arithmetic. And then day three, driving a car, day four. How old are these kids? I think age is just a number. <laughs> and can you explain koala? I'm just thinking something the same size as, as, a, as like an infant or a toddler. Like a baby koala? Aren't koala? No, like a full oh, koalas. koala. I thought you were just saying panda. I was picturing this whole time. Do, is I was it my accent? Panda. <laughs> is, is, it, is it my thick accent? Koala. <laughs> Panda. I see. I see. No, no, I get it. I get it. (laughs) I'm sorry. Okay, let me go back to that. Our kids are in a in a thunderdome with koalas. Why is this gonna teach them how to persevere and have grit and stuff? What are you talking about? Koalas are they just sit there. No, they for eucalyptus koalas are very aggressive. Have you ever seen an aggressive koala? These are like nature's huggers. That's who you're talking about? Panda or koala? koala. <laughs> now yeah. I'm confused. You know how many lives koalas take every year? None. They fall out of trees. <laughs> yeah, they fall out of trees and they're deadly. Deadly. Yeah. Okay, so in your version, <laughs> the kids are competing very slowly and gradually over who will get to eat eucalyptus leaves. In my version, I think that we just keep telling them that they're not doing so great. You know, so you're, in your of, version, it's more damaging. In your version, it's going to leave long-lasting scars. In my version, no matter what they do, like let's say they they make us breakfast, you know, and they make, <laughs> they make us like this really great <laughs> breakfast and they're like, mom, dad, what do you think? And then I'm like, it's okay. This this The toast is a little burnt. Actually, I, I feel like I'm recreating my own childhood. Seriously, like I was about to say, you said that to me the other day. I'd be like, uh, it t- I've tasted something better on the bottom of my shoe. That's good. Yeah. But then you go, why don't you try again? And then the second time they do it, you're like, wow, this is great. It sounds like we abducted these kids. <laughs> it sounds like we're breaking them down. They're in a cult. And, oh, wait, maybe, does this have anything to do with, like, cult training? Like, learn helplessness? Is this how they um, kind of, like, get your mindset for following rules? I think and, like, cults 
or have more to do with random reinforcement and isn't never that... knowing whether you're going to get punished or um, for the same thing for the same thing. Oh, I see. So, so the same thing with an abusive like, relationship. Yeah. It's you don't know if you're going to get punishment or praise. Yeah. And so, so you're like overly, overly dependent on that praise and you never know when it's going to happen. I'm talking they have to learn from their mistakes. We don't yeah. baby them. We don't tell them that they're doing great. Yeah. And then when they do get better, we tell them that they've done better. I think about this a lot with um, what my own mom did for me. There was this one night where I woke up. I must have been seven or eight years old. And I got really inspired in the middle of the night to write a poem. And I remember it was about this caged bird. It was like a dove. And my mom was in the kitchen binge eating chocolate, I think. I come up to her and I'm like, Mom, I wrote this poem. What do you think? And I give it to her. And she's like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. These two words don't really rhyme, though, right? <laughs> Brilliant. Awesome. But I credit her with my grit and perseverance and trying to get better and better. So maybe, thank you, Mom, for not telling me that I did a good job when really that poem, let's face it, was mediocre. Well, I mean, it, we will never know now because it ended up at the bottom of the river. But here's my story. So early on in the early 80s, there was a little kid, young young kid named uh, Adam Walsh who was abducted. It, it turned everyone, changed parenting forever in terms of like, how watchful they have to be, the kinds of things that can happen. This abduction, like, was was huge. It was it was worldwide, and kids were getting uh, fingerprinted and photographed, and dental records were were now available. So that way, they can if a kid goes missing, it was like it was a precursor to Amber Alert and things like that. So um, I remember coming home, and 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 we had this big rally at school. It wasn't a rally; it was like this police detective came and talked to us about like what we can do. And I noticed that my mom wasn't there for this. Uh, you know, oh, all no. these other parents were there. So I went home and I was like, hey, Ma, you know, they gave us this thing to give to our parents. Hey, if your parents aren't here, here, give this to your parents to tell you everything you need to do on when to come to the police station and get uh, fingerprinted and all that. So I go to mom and I was like, hey, mom, um, hey, look, uh, you know, because of Adam Walsh, this is, we have to do this. I have to get fingerprinted. And she goes, I, they don't want you. They don't want you. They're not looking for you, stupido. They're going to want you. Yeah, they'll give you back. And I was like, okay, all right. Well, you know, all right. So I'm. I guess I'm good. Was that her way of putting your mind at ease? Yeah, that was my mom's way. <laughs> she did a lot of that. Uh, so it was my mom's way of being like, "I, Mio, you're safe. You're safe. You're you're in the nest, and you're okay." <laughs> By telling me, she was like, "They don't want you, stupid old. They're not going for you. Yeah, they're not." So I spent the rest of my life trying to get myself kidnapping worthy. That so, makes you know, so much sense. I, I, I was well-dressed. I always I was always like bathed. I had my hair immaculate. Always you asked strangers if they had candy. Asked strangers, hey, excuse me, sir, can you give me a ride? You Where? I don't care. big white vans. Yeah, also big white vans. Excuse me, can, can you take me to school? Where do you, <laughs> across town? I don't really care where you take me. I love ice cream. Do anything for a quarter. You know, that kind of stuff. All right, so here are the takeaways from Learned Helplessness. As far as I can see, mm-hmm. you know, going back to that little experiment that I did with you in the very beginning with slapstick and whirl and then Cinerama, I think the important thing to remember is that even when we've had experiences that have demonstrated to us that no matter what we do, nothing's going to change, Cinerama is always a possibility. Yes, even though you might have had a lot of those failures and even if people have told you that no matter what you do, nothing will change, that next thing might be totally different. Wow. That's actually very inspiring. I like that. If you're going to get shocked 99 times, that 100th time, you'll be able to get out. Yeah, and and the way I think about it too is understanding how much our brain needs that training to see that, you know, in in psychology, we also call the self-efficacy. 
it's really eye-opening to me that it doesn't come naturally to us. Having that sense of control over our environment doesn't come naturally to us. So it's almost like we have to push ourselves to put ourselves in those uncomfortable situations where through our effort, we learn that we can get through the difficulty. We learn that we can make a difference. And little by little by little, that's going to rewire our brain to see obstacles as opportunities to see obstacles as something that we can handle. Comedians go through this a lot. They talk a lot about bombing on stage Jeez. early on in their careers, like Bill Burr and you know even Kevin Hart and these guys. I love listening to their their bomb stories. Seeing someone I respect, you know, even like Richard Pryor, going through the same things yeah. and the same fears and teaching themselves that there's beauty behind those failures. Yeah. You know, there, there's real art there. And the most dangerous thing you could do for your aspirations is give up the first time you bomb. Because mm. what your brain needs most is seeing that even after bombing, you can get better. Yeah. And I think passing on those bomb stories is one of the best things that we can do. Okay. <laughs> now we're on the no-fly list. So that was... That was <laughs> All right. So, so we've explored the feeling of lack of control. Now let's turn our focus to an expectation of control. Okay. Otherwise known as hope. What do you think hope is? The expectation of control. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> wow, you're listening. <laughs> Do you think it's different from optimism? Optimism feels hollow, but hope mm. is an actual, real expectation. What you're saying is super close to the way psychologists have interpreted it. So it actually turns out that most people are pretty optimistic. Psychologist Tali Sharat wrote this great paper called The Optimism Bias. And she points out that 80% of the population across age, gender, race, and nationality are basically stupidly optimistic. <laughs> so in other words, as humans, we tend to think that things will actually turn out better than they do. So students expect to receive higher starting salaries than they wind up getting. They expect to get better and more job offers. Uh, we chronically underestimate how long a project will take and how much it'll cost. There's some fun research that shows that we think our vacations are going to be better than they are. And this one I, I thought was really fitting for you. We are more likely to think that we'll get a gift within the next month than we actually are. How likely do you think you are to get a gift? I'm going to buy myself something after this podcast. <laughs> So there you go. Self-agency. Self-agency. Get yourself Absolutely. that gift. And I have hope and know for a fact that it's going to happen. So here's something interesting. I find that every generation looks at the generation behind them and is like, those kids are spoiled. Those young people don't know what they're doing. Now my generation is doing that to every generation behind us. Yeah, you know? definitely. Um, There's and, some really fun quotes from the 1800s about how kids these days are so right, right. And then like, you know, like, oh, they expect to just have a job ready for them when they get out of school and blah, blah. Everyone has that. What's fascinating is that it seems that this is not a generational condition. It's a human condition. Essentially, what this means is that most people are wrong about how good things will be. But mm -hmm. being optimistic also seems to pay off. People who are more optimistic are more successful at work, and they even are more physically healthy. Well, they can probably, like, shrug things off. You know, like if something bad happens at work or they're overlooked mm. for a promotion or You're something. You're like, it'll pass. Yeah, it'll it's pass. Gonna get there's going to be another, there's going to be another job opening. On the other hand, uh -huh. optimism bias could also lead to people getting into more car accidents. <laughs> um, Wait, not... okay. don't skim over that. Why? <laughs> Why do you think, Mr. Leadfoot? Oh, hey. Everything's um, going to be fine. It's not going to happen to me. For anyone listening who's in law enforcement, <laughs> she means Leadfoot like, teddy bear or cuddle buns she doesn't mean that i speed 
No, that's exactly what I mean. I mean that you speak. And it's it's always that feeling that we have of, oh, it's not going to happen to me. It happens to other people, but it's not going to happen to me. Most of us live under this cloud of generally things are going to be great. It also leads to people not saving enough money because they tend to go, there'll be more money later. It'll be fine. Uh, in fact, some researchers blame our last recession on optimism bias. I could see that. Entire institutions just going, it'll work out. Yeah. It'll, it'll work. Has your optimism bias ever gotten you in trouble? No, but it's gotten us in trouble. Uh, your optimism bias when you want to do stupid things on vacation, uh, when I want to just <laughs> chill out and relax. And you're like, we'll be fine. Look. I got this guy on Craigslist. <laughs> We're going to jump off a mountain. We'll be fine. He's uh, got six reviews on Craigslist. Just one thing to point out is that we are both here and we are in fact both fine. So would we call that a bias or would we call that an accurate I prediction? Think we call of that reality. we can chalk that up to me being an excellent survivalist <laughs> with very strong bones and the lungs of an athlete. So going know. back to my original question about hope versus optimism, mm-hmm. I think the way that you described it was actually really close to the way that researchers now are operationalizing it. So optimism is seen as more passive than hope. It's almost like optimism is about expecting things to go well, whereas hope is related to a feeling of agency or control over what happens. So optimism, you're sort of going like, I think it'll be fine. Hope is I'm going to contribute to things working out well. Can you explain the agency and like why that means control? Yeah, agency basically means you are the agent in the environment. It is not acting on you. You are acting on it. Yeah, but it still sounds like it's misused. I I don't like scientists using words, like just picking a word like uh, my own elephant. You're like, well, elephant means here (laughs) is that when you're an elephant, nothing can knock you down. Agency. Control. 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 That's it. You guys, seriously, control. That's it. Okay, control. Three syllables instead of two. I'll let them know. Psychologists, are you listening? Please. We're not using the word agency anymore. I feel like you're mocking me right now. Can you really talk to them? Because I like to say a few things about why Dr. Pepper is has so much sugar and still tastes like you can lower the sugar, still maintain the taste. Get on it. What do you think psychologists do? Yeah. Okay. So speaking of psychologists, psychologist Rick Snyder was the biggest contributor in the field of research on hope. He developed something called the adult hope scale. <laughs> Okay. Despite you mildly mocking no, I'm it. Like, no, I'm just like this guy. Imagine he's like in a bar or something and uh, he, he, you know. He you don't think this, this is a great pickup line? He meets this person that he's interested in, man or woman. And he's like, hey, you know, can I buy you a drink? And they're like, hey, uh, what do you do? Oh, I'm the leading researcher on hope. He was actually. The and then they're like, I'm good. Thank Are you. you kidding? That that's is not the hottest. Pay, that's not going to pay the bills. I would be Hope all over researcher. that, dude. Sounds like a cult. Sounds like he's going to nab me. Sounds like he's going to tie me up somewhere and no one's, people are going to be like, I would oh, hope so. That, oh, wow. <laughs> nice. Anywho, nice I'm going to ask callback. you some questions right. from the adult hope scale. Yeah. <laughs> The adult hope scale. <laughs> right. com. We're going to find out once and for all just how hopeful you are. Yep. So tell me on a scale of one to eight, if this is one, definitely false, or all the way to eight, definitely true, and anything in between. To what extent is this true? Uh You can think of many ways to get out of a jam. Me or you? you. Just kidding. Seven. You energetically pursue your goals. Energetically? You got to put that in there. Uh, Rick Snyder put that in there. uh, Four. Okay. There are lots. Okay. There are lots of ways. Five way- and a half. Five. <laughs> Next Five. question. Five. There are lots of ways around any problem. 
seven. Okay. You can think of many ways to get the things in life that are important to you. Six. Even when others get discouraged, you know you can find a way to solve the problem. Seven. Your past experiences have prepared you well for your future. <laughs> uh, six. Okay. So super interesting. There was actually two sub categories of hope in there. Mm-hmm. One had to do with agency. Sorry. But turns control, out what <laughs> had to do with control. Yeah. So you actually scored really, really high in that area. And you scored moderately to, I'd say, a little low on the pathway subscale. So agency has to do with feeling a sense of control. Like yeah. you feel like you have the tools you need to solve any problem. Yeah. But you are not as high in taking steps to achieve goals. Pathway. I, that sounds a little judgmental, but, I'll, I'll, you know, science, whatever. <laughs> Anyway, so Snyder popularized a study of hope and many researchers have come after him looking at questions like these. For example, a study of 500 college students, this is a study done by Randolph Arno and his team, found that more hopeful students, so students that score high on that scale mm-hmm. that I shared with you and s- similar assessments, they had lower levels of depression and anxiety. So let me get this right. The scientists learned that hope is good for depression. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that one, And yes. they, 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 they showed up to work and, and did that, right? <laughs> they didn't just, like, look at a piece of paper and be like, hey, you know what will counter depression? <laughs> and then the other part, we're going to be like, yeah, yeah, let's just... You know what they probably did? They probably went out to TGI Fridays every day and had those little culottes and didn't do the research and just were like, yeah, we did it. Because uh, who's going to... Who's going to... Of course, hope. You think this is self-explanatory now, but... depression... Depression, remember, people used to do things like Oh, this was done in the 1800s. Where you would stick a hole, like make a hole in someone's head to hope that the depression demons come out. I don't think that's, <laughs> is that, no, that's not what they did. Well, for mental health. You're talking yeah. about trepanation. Trepanation. Trepanation? Yeah, trepanation or burr-holing. I, I know it is burr-holing. <laughs> I used to, I actually, my, my uncle was a professional burr-holer. <laughs> anyway, the point is, this might sound like a commonplace realization yeah. because of what we know now, but for, a, obviously I'm, I'm being dramatic here in terms of how far back trepanation was a thing, but really it wasn't until relatively recently that we had a way to operationalize depression. Before that, it was sort of like, oh, they're really sad and disinterested for some reason. Yeah. But now we know that the heart of depression is a feeling of hopelessness. And the, the way around it isn't to cheer someone up, but to give them more of a feeling of agency oh. and hope. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I was surprised to find out that hope is a better predictor of academic success than intelligence and past performance, hmm. uh, which didn't hold true for optimism. More optimistic students weren't necessarily performing better, but more hopeful students were. Because I think hopeful is active, right? Yeah, exactly. Shane Lopez and his colleagues analyzed, they actually pooled studies with over 11,000 employees. They found that hope accounts for productivity in the workplace more so than intelligence and optimism. What would you, what would be hopeful in a workplace? Like, give me an example. I hope I can get this project (laughs) done on time. So that's what what they mean? Like, I hope? Well, no, they they did similar research. It's not like, I hope I get a raise. Yeah, those things can be can factor into it. So most of these studies have people take the some version of the, that hope assessment, yeah, and they look at how high they score on the hope assessment and then how well they perform. They okay. also do things like IQ tests and optimism tests, and then they see what are the big predictors. Okay. Last one I'll share here is Stephen Stern and his colleagues looked at mortality rates of adults ages 64 to 79 within a period of four years, and they found that 29% of people who felt hopeless died within that period of time. And just 11% of the hopeful people died. 11%. 
Yeah, so yeah. way more of the hopeless people died. Why do you think okay. that might be? Uh, like I said, hope is more active. If you have no hope about anything, you're, you're more likely to kind of just settle down and not take uh, an interest in your health. Yeah, that's um, one of their biggest yeah, predictors so, too. And, and, and not uh, not want to do anything. Like maybe you're you just not socializing as much. Sure, you're not sure. maybe physically moving around as much yeah. even. Yeah. So hope is important. Yeah. Before we wrap up, I want to share a psychology hack that can help people get a quick boost of hope. Okay. And it's called positive self-talk. Are you okay with this? Self-talk, self-talk, self-talk. That was my Dolly Parton. I liked it. (laughs) So a study of over 44,000 individuals by Andrew Lane and his team looked at the most effective short-term tools for high performance on a competitive task. Okay. And they found that when comparing the cognitive strategies of using imagery, like picture yourself winning, versus planning, versus self-talk, self-talk was the clear winner. So apparently, it's also a key strategy used by Navy SEALs Mm -hmm. and Olympic athletes. Do you ever engage in positive self-talk? Can you give me an example? I am awesome. I am great. I can do this. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think when uh, particular uh, tasks, especially if I'm like working out or doing something like that, if I'm at a challenging physical obstacle, I don't sit there and say, oh, if I see it, I can dream it or achieve it or whatever. I, I, I can't get into that mindset. I always pull myself out. But if I talk myself through it, if I tell myself that you can... Um, I used to insult myself, but now uh, as I've gotten older, I realize that I, I it doesn't work for me. So I I do I tell myself like of course you 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 know you not you got this, but like walk yourself through. It's easy. Take it step by step. Like, yeah. So actually, something that you just did, the final pro tip that I'll share is something that you literally just did. This is from a study by psychologists Sanda Dalkus and Dolores Albarasin. So it turns out that when giving yourself a pep talk. Mm-hmm. It's much more effective to use you versus I language. So in other words, talk to yourself like you are someone else. I would think that when I'm by myself and I'm down and I'm working out, that I sound like a like a like bananas because yeah. I'm saying like you got like you can do and I picture like me talking to me, yeah. right? Like but I picture myself older and I have a little stocking hat on. I have a, a nice little cardigan and I'm a little smaller than than me currently. A stocking hat like you're about to rock. No, not a stocking store. hat, like like a little like a little a knit hat. So basically, I'm picturing myself like Mick from, from Rocky. Rocky. Yeah. That's cool. And I even have the accent and everything. And I'm like, you got this. You're going to go home with it. Of course you got this. You know, like, and, and that's that's not a very good Burgess Meredith, but, you know, whatever. That's fantastic. Uh, so that's exactly what researchers found is that if you need a really quick infusion of mm-hmm. hope, giving yourself a pep talk as though you were talking to someone else. So using the you, second person, but, is but the best not, way to but go. But not insulting yourself, right? Not like, insulting I know yourself. people that are like, you it, you, you know, you, you, you're weak. You know what I mean? No, like, actually, so the Navy SEAL research found that SEALs who use negative self-talk were more likely to give up in yeah. the face of obstacles. It's a lot harder to talk positively about yourself, especially if you're failing at something. I don't mean failing like... Uh, long term, I mean like short term. Like if I go up under the bar and I'm trying to squat a particular weight and I can't get it up, and that's I'm failing, but I'm not. I haven't given up. Which is exactly that moment where, you know, it's the question of are you going to shift into helplessness mode or are you going to put in a little bit more effort? Yeah, yeah. and and that's when Mickey comes in. That's when Mickey comes. I, in. I call him uh, um, uh, Ricky. Ricky, because you mm-hmm. don't want to. It's copyright infringement. Exactly yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to get it's sued. Really respectful of you. Yeah, you know, MGM is a big company. Before we wrap up, because you are such a good pep talker, you've given me many pep talks, and right now you and I essentially are the voices in people's heads. Mm -hmm. Can you close this episode out by giving our listeners a pep talk? 
Yeah. You got this. No, you got this. You got this, no, Brian. No, you got this, You team. are such a great pep talker. <laughs> you can pep talk anyone okay. into anything. So for anyone out there who's on the cusp of trying something new or who is trying something and just can't get over that wall, I'm going to tell you this. Take one step back and then take two steps forward. Just get one more hand over. You can do this. Anyone can do anything. Well, okay, let me just scrape. Not anyone can do anything. Let's let's be honest. Like, I can't dunk a basket. No, you know what? I can dunk a basketball. Do what you're going to do. Do what you have to. Get through to the other side of that wall. I am going down to the basketball court right now, and I'm going to dunk. I like how it ended with you uh, giving yourself a pep talk. That wasn't a pep talk. That was a fact. (laughs) Before we go, any takeaways that you want to share? I love the idea of talking to yourself positively and continuing to do that. I I also learned what hope means. And hope isn't like this big ethereal thing that's like a cloud in the sky. Hope can be active. And I love that. I I love that. And hope is almost like a a muscle, right? You can build it up. Yeah, absolutely. I I think so. I I love that also a little failure is good for success. Go out there and bomb and do whatever you're, whatever you need. If it's public speaking and you go out there and you, and you crap the bed or whatever in your mind, you know, you can always get up and do it again. And you've gotten that much better because you'll know a little bit more. And share your bombs. Share your share those, Give those bombs. bombs away. Oh, if you're going on Facebook and you're talking about how great your life is, why don't you share two bombs as well? Why don't you share something about how tough life has been and help someone else out as well? Absolutely. That was it. Thank you very much, Tanya, for talking about hope and failure and success. And thank you for listening to Talk, Talk Psych, Psych to, to Me. me.